0: Welcome to At the End of the Day, I'm Hannah Sung. In every episode, I speak with friends who have stories and experiences that I like to learn from. And if you listened to my very first episode last week, you know that I had a super fun conversation with my new friend, Anne Pornell, comedian and BTS Dan. Well, I have to tell you, today's conversation is not really in the same emotional zone. We're talking about trauma and therapy and dealing with grief. We still laugh, but I just wanted to let you know in case, you know, you want to assess whether you're in the mood for that or not. Today, I am speaking with Sarah Pauly. She's a filmmaker, activist, and Canada sweetheart, if you remember her as a child on the road to Avonlea. Her new book is called Run Towards the Danger, and it's an incredible read where she explores and confronts all of her own scariest life experiences. There's the time she was a nine-year-old actor on the set of a Terry Gilliam movie where explosions on set sent her to hospital. And just a couple of years later, her mother died when she was just 11. And there's the time as a teenager that she was on what she called, quote unquote, a terrible date with Gian Gomeshi previously one of this country's most famous broadcasters. And you may remember in 2014, more than 20 women came forward to allege that he had assaulted or harassed them. Well, Sarah had her own story that she kept to a very small inner circle until this book. So what I wanted to know from Sarah is how we can confront our own toughest life experiences and whether it's even wise to do that or when we can know that it's something we should do. Here's my conversation with Sarah Polly. Good morning, Sarah. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I'm so excited to talk with you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's exciting. Okay, so let's start by talking about run towards the danger. That was advice from a doctor to run towards the danger when you were suffering from concussion symptoms. And I'm just kind of amazed by your book and what you've accomplished in terms of looking within the scariest things, honestly, sometimes in life are like the things that we hold within, right? So first of all, like why would you even talk about the things that scare you most? Well, first of all,
1: thank you. I think because they're there anyway. You're either looking at them or you're running away from them. And I had this thing when I was a kid where You know, when my brother used to chase me around to try to like fake scare me or actually scare me, as the case may have been, I had this moment where I realized that the scariest part of the experience was the running away. And at some point, I just realized like if I just curled up into a ball on the ground, whatever one thought was coming was coming. It was a lot (laughs) easier than the process of running away. So I'm not a big fan of the feeling of running away. I mean, I don't know anyone who's been able to outrun childhood trauma or difficult experience. It does come and deal with you if you don't go deal with it. So I don't know why you wouldn't choose to be the the active participant instead of the prey. Mm-hmm. It's
0: a really great mental image of running away and that being the scariest part. And there was something that struck me so much in your book. It was just such a succinct paragraph where you said we need to have people witness the traumas in our life. So can we talk about that. How did you make that happen for yourself?
1: Well, I think in some of the stories that I tell in this book, I had the very good fortune of people making themselves known years later and saying, yeah, that really happened to you. I was there. Specifically around the stuff that happened when I was a child on the making of the movie, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, where things got really out of control and felt really dangerous. Those were experiences where Terry Gilliam, who directed the film, when I would have email exchanges or conversations with him about it, he took responsibility for bits of it, but not other bits. And ultimately, his feeling was that things weren't actually that dangerous. That was my childhood perception of it. And at some point on Twitter, Eric Idle just sort of announced himself. He'd read an article I had written about it, and she just wrote, you know, she was right. It's all true she was in danger many times. It's amazing one of us didn't die. Like, And it was so incredible because even though I knew I was telling the truth and this happened, I was also being kind of gaslit about it and being told that it wasn't really what I remembered it to be. To have someone who was a really legitimate, credible adult step out of the shadows and go, actually, that's real, was huge. And I think, I guess in terms of answering your question more directly, I think you only get that moment of witnessing and validation, if it's even available to you, which I think it isn't to many, many people. But if it is, you only get it by beginning to tell these stories and beginning to talk about these things. You're never going to get it with holding it to yourself or even an acceptance of your version of what happened. To have your version heard and believed even by somebody who wasn't there is an incredibly healing experience that it's a shame to deprive yourself of, I think. And I think it's always surprising who's capable of reactions. I mean, people will definitely disappoint you. I think when you talk Hmm. about traumas that have happened, there are people who will definitely fall down. But there are those who suddenly stand up and kind of like put their arms around you. And that's shocking to me. A really amazing part of putting this book out into the world has been the people who I never imagined would step forward have been stepping forward and going, oh yeah, that did happen to you, but also this and this and this happened to you. Oh, and here are my 10 journal entries from that week. And you forgot these details. (gasps) And it's been like insane, the experience of getting that level of contribution from people that like add to your own picture of your life, but also theirs, like it also takes you out of yourself and go, what was that person going through while I was in the middle of my own big story? You know, it's been really interesting.
0: Wow. So, That's really an unexpected thing that you said, because I thought you laid everything bare on the page. But in fact, it's almost like just one step out of many, because now it kind of jogs people's memories or opens the conversation for more.
1: Yeah, it really does. I think these conversations are endless. And the thing is, we just don't have them, right? Like I kind of after I made this film Stories We Tell, which was about my family, where I sort of investigated my family history and my job was for days at a time to ask questions of my family about their version of our family history and shut up about my own. Like never interrupt (laughs) with, oh, no, 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 that's not how." To actually have to listen to someone's whole story from beginning to end, Mm -hmm. like someone you know well, is an extraordinary experience because you realize how much you don't actually know about both their experience and the way they've perceived that experience until you are forced to listen. Mm -hmm. And so I did that with other people in the making of that film. And with this book, I was able to tell my stories as well as I could from beginning to end. And now I'm experiencing the the reverse of this, which is what does it feel like when somebody has had to listen to your story from beginning to end? And how yeah. does that change your relationship to them? Because I would say that I'm walking through a different world now than I was before I released this book. Like, I mean, not everybody's read it, but the people I know who have, Their relationship to me is just fundamentally changed on a molecular level because they've heard these stories from beginning to end of things they didn't know. So, without me being an active participant, I suddenly walk into a room of people I know and my relationship to them has changed, but I haven't been there for it. They've been alone in a dark room, like, Mm -hmm. you know, with a reading lamp on, reading the inside of my life. And it's just been the most surreal experience. Like, I feel like I'm in a Charlie Kaufman movie or something. Like, people just know all this stuff about me. And I should have anticipated that being. A shift, but I didn't actually. Like I had this experience the other night where I went to the Toronto Film Critics Awards. And my first essay in the book is about paralyzing stage fright Mm -hmm. and a nervous breakdown I had with stage fright when I was a teenager. And they asked me to come, as they often do, to like be there and present. And I usually find a way to not be available because I'm really scared of being on stage. Mm -hmm. And I agreed to do it because I was like, you know what, these people are have been really good to me in the past. And I really like this event. And then the day before, I didn't feel that well. And I was like, you know, I have a few cold symptoms. I just think with COVID, it's not responsible for me to come even though I've tested twice negative. And they were like, we're putting you on stage with another person to present the award and blah. And I was like, oh, right. They know I have stage right now. So so like, I can't actually use any excuse to wriggle out of anything anymore. And then I got, I got up on the stage and I realized like a lot of the people in that room had read my book. And as I went onto the stage, I went, it was, I looked down, it was like, everyone was watching someone on a tightrope. And I thought, maybe it'll be comforting to be on a stage where everyone in the room or a lot of people in the room know that you're petrified of being on stage. Hmm. Like maybe that will be comforting. And I looked out and I was like, nope opposite. Like everyone looks <laughs> like they're going lose my mind. So stuff like that has been like, it's just this strange thing of having changed your world without realizing how you've changed it and having to discover that, mm-hmm. which I'm finding totally fascinating.
0: Oh, wow. That is such a funny story because I can imagine myself there. I think everybody in the crowd is feeling very supportive towards you, right?
1: Totally. I mean, that's how
0: a human being feels about another human being.
1: When you know they're no, fear. and I did feel like amazing support, but you know when you look out and you see concern, <laughs> it's like <laughs> like the most frightening thing in the world is the look of fear, and <laughs> when you see people mm. be afraid for you,
0: <laughs> it's so true. I remember every time my mother has looked at me with that face <laughs> for sure. <laughs> every time it's always something health related. Oh
1: God, <laughs> it's horrifying.
0: Well, can we talk a little bit more about that stage fright because? It was very extreme, and it was really interesting to read about that experience in in detail. And so you wrote about how debilitating that stage fright became. You developed this verbal tick that when you heard it back, you said you felt humiliated and you had been on stage in front of thousands of people, and they were all hearing this verbal tick. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Can we talk a little bit about how you feel about that now, looking back as an adult, looking back on your Teenage self.
1: Well, again, it's changed even in the last few weeks. Like I think, I think the stories that form us, the ones that have been the, the hardest for us, are ones that are constantly changing. We like to have these sort of rigid narratives around how to make sense of those things, but the problem is they keep shifting and changing. So, one of the things I've discovered recently, and since I wrote this essay, was. I knew in retrospect, always since I've been an adult, that if I had just shared that pain and that fear and that shame with people, I would have had a- enormous help. Like the production in Stratford was filled with really nurturing, wise, wonderful people. It wasn't like being on a TV show. It wasn't like being on The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Like I was surrounded by support. And one of the saddest things for me is thinking. If I had just reached out and said what I was feeling, they would have helped me through it. They would have had techniques. They'd probably dealt with stage fright themselves. I shouldn't have been going into the theater two hours ahead of time, sobbing in a Mm -hmm. in the basement, and then trying to hide it and having this nervous breakdown in solitude. Like I would have had enormous help in figuring out how to keep going and be healthy. And what I didn't consider is what the responses of the people who have read that essay, who were there. Have said to me. And what they have said to me unanimously, independently of each other, which I could have never anticipated is, oh, we would have just let you go. Hmm. And what I thought is, oh, they would have helped me deal with the stage fright so the show could go on. But Hmm. actually, what they said is, if we'd known you were suffering that much, you didn't have to keep going. I mean, we would have helped you to try, but we would have just replaced you. It would have been fine. Like, Mm -hmm. I so wish you would have reached out. So that I had never considered that they were actually so decent that. They would have been fine with sinking the show to like just let me go and be a healthy 15 year old. Like nobody's priority was for that show to go on. And I think growing up in film and television, that response was inconceivable to me.
0: Yeah. You felt so much weight of responsibility being the star.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. Like I'd never been in a play in my life and I was in front of thousands of people every night with a role that was bigger than Hamlet. It was like, it was absurd. But I didn't make mistakes when I was a kid. That wasn't my brand. You know? <laughs> there was a lot of, it was a lot of pressure to just not let all these people down and not make a fool of myself. And I grew up in a family where we laughed at each other a lot. I mean a lot of people do. Hmm. We laughed at each other a lot in a really mean, jaggedy way. Hmm. And I think the idea of failing at anything was Terrifying to me because it would become a really, really mean joke. Mm. You sort of grow up laughing at each other's weaknesses. It becomes a bit of a problem to be vulnerable. Yeah.
0: Well, I can say that in my family, failure wasn't an option either. And we weren't even laughing very much. So,
1: <laughs> oh no. That wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's the I mean, it's a common story. It's not like a particularly traumatic story, but yeah, it's true. At least there were the laughs. <laughs> and so, have you had a situation where you felt like close to? not being able to handle something or failing at something. And that's come home to roost, that feeling of growing up in that family where you couldn't fail. Yeah.
0: You know, so you mentioned your film Stories We Tell, and that to me was an incredible movie. And I am just amazed by your ability to have made it because even just talking about family history is something that doesn't happen in mine. Right? So, I mean, not, not very much. It comes out in weird, tiny little bursts in strange moments. This is why I've learned to kind of feel that it's very important to spend time with family because it doesn't happen at a special event or, you know, it's Uh like when you're literally on the kitchen floor with your mom sorting Tupperware, something comes out, you know? Yeah. And at least that's the way it is in my family. Like when I ask questions, that does not go over well, but Uh it might be very Korean, but things come out sideways. And so you just kind of have to be there to catch it when all the conditions are right. So I love that that stage fright story that you kind of just synopsized. Like I think about the times when I was in my twenties. So that's not being a child like you were, but you know, I also had a lot of fear about going on live television. And I also like actually cried in the bathroom a lot, but also, also mm-hmm. cried in front of people I worked with and my mm-hmm. bosses, but there wasn't that kind of clear eyed, solutions-oriented view of like, oh, are you having a really tough time? Let me do this for you. Uh That actually was not the case. And that was the early 2000s. And I have talked about it since with my lifelong friends from that era when I was working at Much Music. And one of my friends just said, we didn't look out for each other back then. We all laughed. Yeah, It's like, yeah, things have changed. We didn't. Yeah. So I think that When you talk about these traumas that you went through, like, man, I feel for you as a 15-year-old on stage in Stratford, but I also feel like the way that you dealt with it is the stuff that makes up your life. Mm -hmm. And your book is this incredible gift to people, including yourself.
1: I cried reading your book. Thank you. But yeah, I do think it's true. Like, I do think that the stuff that is hardest for us and the stuff we're avoiding, it, it does make us who we are. And I think we can spend a lot of time regretting or resenting that. But there's this like, there's this moment where you sort of realize this is the material you have to work with. This is actually like what mm-hmm. makes it possible for you to connect to other people. This is what makes you curious. This is what has led to the sequence of events in your life, whether consciously or subconsciously. And it's like, this is what we have. We've got to kind of eventually turn towards it. And I, I don't I don't mean that in a kind of blanket cookie cutter way. Like, I also mm-hmm. think there has to be some scaffolding. Like, I don't think everyone should just start running headlong into the stuff that's traumatized them and possibly re-traumatized themselves. Like, I actually think there has to be some infrastructure around it. What is that infrastructure? What is the infrastructure that you have and that you've created for yourself? I'm a huge fan of therapy. Mm-hmm. I think that not every therapist is the right one for you. But I think finding somebody who you feel you can trust is essential. I think building a really strong group of friends who not only are there for you, but that you show yourself you can be there for is gigantic. I think to actually be able to trust yourself as a friend Hmm. is huge because I don't think you can trust yourself to rely on yourself. I don't think you can rely on yourself until you've seen that others can do it that sounds really basic. And I think for a lot of people listening, like, yeah, of course I have my friends, but a lot of people don't. Mm -hmm. My therapist reminds me of this sometimes Mm because I'm with the same person (laughs) after 22 years, but she, (laughs) she will say sometimes, you know, the first thing you came in here saying was, I want to learn how to be a friend. Like I want to be a better, better friend to the people in my life. And, and I actually think like investing in those relationships in terms of like Figuring out who you are in relationship to other people and who you can be and stretching the boundaries of what you think that is, is huge because I think it's what makes you trust yourself ultimately. So I think that's really important. I think physical exercise is like really essential. I just think moving your body every day, especially if you're going to do this kind of work of going back into your past and confronting Mm -hmm. things. I think you have to be able to reset your state. And I think sweating does. It just resets Mm -hmm. your state. And I think you have to know that you're in a space where you can handle it. Like I always think the most interesting work that I've done in therapy has been when things have been going well. I mean, it's great to do it when things are going badly. It's essential. But then it's like a medication for a problem that's already there. But the prophylactic stuff, like the stuff mm-hmm. where you're where, – when things are in an okay state to go back in and dredge up the hard stuff is I think where the really important stuff can happen. But I think it's really worth using those – Few precious moments in life when things are stable and peaceful to like see what might be coming and getting you next from the past. That's a really important point because
0: I always feel like, oh, well, I'm I'm doing okay these days. Therapy so expensive. Maybe I should quit now. Yeah. I kind of said that in jest because, like, I'm I'm being honest about the little voice in my mind that is like the immigrant kid who doesn't want to spend more money on myself than I need to. But I do think that if you can access therapy, it is so essential. I think it's criminal that therapy isn't available to everybody. I mean, it's insane, and
1: I also think it costs our healthcare system a lot of money to Absolutely. not be having preventative medicine.
0: Yeah, I had physical ailments that actually were the reason why I twigged onto the fact that I needed therapy. I mean, I think we understand now that there's no real separation of the the mind and the
1: body. but Yeah, and I, I do feel like navigating our healthcare system right now is so hard. Mm. I personally know people who are in crisis right now, legitimately mm-hmm. in crisis and just cannot find and get help. So with that knowledge, I say like if you can find a therapist or even like through a university or through whatever resources you can find a few sessions of therapy, I think it's helpful. But in the absence of that, I find meditation extremely helpful. Hmm. And then, again, I think if you don't have access to a professional therapist, I think putting the people in your life who you're closest to on alert that you're Mm -hmm. going through a process and, Mm -hmm. and being open about sharing these stories, I just think sometimes the thought of talking about them is harder than the actual talking about them.
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. We're talking about healthcare. And one of the essays that really moved me in your book was the one where you describe giving birth for the first time. So you have three amazing kids. And the first time anyone gives birth is just the first time. Like, you can never prepare yourself. Your birth was fairly traumatic, and you write about that. What have people said to you since reading it?
1: I mean, I think that a lot of women who had not ideal birth stories or not ideal first weeks with their babies maybe being in the NICU like mine was, I've gotten to hear a lot of really amazing stories. I mean, for me, the most exciting thing about putting something out of the world is the stories that you get to hear back from people. With my first pregnancy, I had placenta previa. I had gestational diabetes. I had this feeling of the ripping of scar tissue from my endometriosis. I have a pound of metal in my back, which made an epidural. Sarah, really it's too
0: complicated. much. It oh was
1: of, there were a lot of things. A lot of things <laughs> happened, but you know, I was on bed rest in the hospital for a while. And I actually had a pretty low risk pregnancy compared to the ones I was surrounded by where people mm. were really, you know, their lives were in danger, their baby's lives were in danger. And I think that experience for me of being kind of grounded during my pregnancy where I kind of couldn't move or do anything. You know, the whole book is about this relationship between the past and the present, and this dialogue between them and how they push on each other. And what happened for me was the experience of having lost my mother suddenly just Came home to roost. Suddenly, it was like my body was like, lie down. You have to deal with this. You have to grieve. You have to get angry, or you're not going to be able to. There's not going to be the mental space to be a mother. Mm. And so, in my mind, that's kind of what happened. It was obviously physical and scientific what happened to my body. But I also do think there was this component in which I was given this opportunity to really grieve and really get angry about losing my mother in a way that I hadn't before. And I think that then by the time Eve was ready to come home, I was in a completely different state. I was a different person than I had been before I had gone through that process. Mm -hmm.
0: I think that sometimes, even if you're not ready, quote unquote, to deal with your childhood, or in your case, losing your mom young, going through childbirth is just going to physically force you to face it, as you said, and as you experienced.
1: Yeah, when you have kids and you're raising kids, like so much stuff comes up, right? About mm-hmm. how you were parented or not parented. And it comes up unbidden. It's, unbelievable. it's
0: just, yeah, it's wild. We're so complicated and yet sometimes so simple and basic. But,
1: and when people used to describe that to me before I had kids, when they were like, you see your parents differently or you notice what your parents didn't do or you notice actually what your parents did do and you see it differently. And, I thought in the abstract, that sounded to me like an intellectual process that seemed kind of obvious. Hmm. But what I wasn't prepared for was like, it's a full body, physical, emotional (laughs) experience of those things and those memories. Like it's not a parsing out of information. It's like, (gasps) (gasps) (laughs) it's like this metamorphosis and this like, shifting of all of the material inside you from the past and a reassessment of it. And it's, it's incredibly profound and disturbing and heartening it's ju- it's just amazing yeah i would
0: say that i have never felt so powerful as in the immediate years after i made human beings with my own body and then kept uh-huh. them alive it was like you an intoxicating like, you healing. looked
1: like you felt powerful like i remember I did. seeing you at preschool drop offs like <laughs> with the baby in the carrier and dropping off the preschool kit, and you you were like strutting you were like <laughs> no. i've got this <laughs> oh
0: my god are you for real but you looked the same way no we were both carrying babies in our, you know, the little strap on carrier, and then we'd have like an older child in a stroller. You were doing the exact same thing.
1: I think I had moments where I felt like that, but many more moments where I felt totally incompetent. (laughs) (laughs) I felt very, very messy, I would say, especially when the two close in age were little together.
0: Mm. You just
1: felt like people must have figured out how to do this in a smoother, easier way. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of realize, <laughs> not really. And the ones who seem like that are probably like having their moments too. But yeah, yeah, it's an intimidating time of life, but it is also amazing. It is. Just getting through a day, you do feel kind of like, wow. I want to bottle that feeling.
0: You know, it ebbs and flows, your sense of your own power. But I definitely was drunk on it for a
1: while. How amazing. Yeah. How amazing. And was it about having given birth or about being able to raise these kids? Or like, what was it about that feeling? I think it was a little bit of both.
0: Because, you know, my first birth also had interventions unexpected. It wasn't like yours, as you describe in the book. But I only recognized how traumatic it was when I saw a photo of myself holding my first baby, right in the OR. The picture was taken in the OR, and I couldn't look at it. I was like crying and saying to my husband, "Why did you take this picture?" He's like, "Cause a doctor said to take a picture." And he just kind of, and he was like, "I'll delete it." And I was like, "You cannot delete the first picture of our baby." And I, I just was acting so irrationally, and the first few months were really, really hard. And so I did not feel powerful then. But afterwards, it was the fact that we could get through that. I accidentally starved my son when he was a newborn because I was so driven to breastfeed when my body Mm -hmm. was not doing it. And getting over that guilt and then Mm -hmm. recognizing that I could fatten my baby up. He was laughing. He was happy. Yeah. And then just making another one. (laughs) There was like a good three-year period where I remember going back to the office and saying to someone who had three children, oh my God, like all these parents are just, doing it like superheroes and he just looked at me like very strangely and laughed and I was like but I felt like a superhero just getting it done
1: I remember when Eve was first born looking at all my friends who had kids and going you've had freaking capes and wands and have not told me like all these years I I had no idea I had the exact same word was superhero I was like these people have been doing this literally impossible thing and acting like it's normal yes
0: (laughs) I want to wrap up this conversation by getting back to the original point that I kind of wanted to make, which is that I would love to learn how to talk about the scariest things in our lives. But this whole conversation has been that in a way, because there is really nothing prescriptive step by step. And it's really just about seeing the examples of what people do, such as yourself. And I also want to say that we haven't even talked about the essay you wrote about Gian Gomeshi, which really blew me away because of your ability to self-examine. And that's okay because people can Google up any number of uh, stories that are written about what you say there. Also, there's just so much in the essay itself. So how do you know it's the right time to face your scariest stories? Because, you know, even the Gian Meshi essay that you wrote, like
1: timing
0: was such a huge part of it. I'd love to know how you knew it was time mm-hmm. for this book.
1: I mean, I don't know if there was ever a moment where I knew it was the right time. Like, I don't think it's ever going to be comfortable. So I think if you're waiting for mm-hmm. comfortable, you're not going to go through this process. But I think if something feels like you're fairly certain it will derail you completely and undermine you and that you don't have the supports in place to help capture that. It's probably not the right time. Like I do think like a lot of these stories for me were unpacked over many years. The essay about stage fright and my scoliosis and the neglect I had after my mom died and my mom died, like that was written over 20 years. I had an amazing piece of advice once when I was in my 20s when my dad moved into He moved downtown and it was this big house and he got rid of like 55 boxes of stuff. And it was my clothes from when I was like four and everybody's diaries and it was mildewy and there were cobwebs and it was like (laughs) disgusting. And it took up my entire basement and I would like go around my life making films and in other countries. And I swear to God, I felt the weight of these 55 Mm. boxes that I had to go through at some point. And I was like, I can't even experience anything I'm experiencing until I unpack these stupid boxes and go through them. But the idea of starting it was so overwhelming to me and so horrifying. And I remember my therapist said to me one day, what if you start with just one box? And the idea of starting with one box was something I could handle. Mm -hmm. It was the 55 boxes I couldn't do. And so I think that for me really helps as an image of like, you just start and you don't have to do much the idea is starting to think about how you might embark on a process of looking at stuff as opposed to just diving right in, which I think can be really re-traumatizing for people. Like, I think it's a, it's something to be done with a lot of conscientiousness. And I also think letting people know that you're embarking on that process is really important. Like, when I put this book out into the world, especially with the Meshi essay, which I was really dreading telling that story, I felt like I needed to for a whole bunch of reasons, especially in terms of just solidarity with the women who had come forward and wanting to express how my experience echoed what they said theirs were. I was really not looking forward to what my life was going to look like and the stress of it. And so I did reach out to you and Chi and a few other female friends and just said, just so you know, like, I'm going to need to be around a lot of really supportive women in the next little while. And I'm going to need to have you check in with me. And like, you know, to just actually say that out loud and go, how can I let the people in my life know that I'm about to do something really hard and I'm just going to need some check-ins and I'm going to need some time with you. And, and people are really happy when you do that. Like, that's the thing is it feels like you're burdening people. But as soon as you ask somebody that, they know they can ask you, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that we underestimate people's willingness to, and desire to be there. I do remember you specifically saying, I'm
0: nervous about this book and I'm going to need some just female friendship. And honestly, to hear that was an honor. It felt really great to be told what to do. It's like, (laughs) I can be your friend. I can do that. (laughs) And I hope that people can hear that someone as strong and principled and clear-eyed as you would have those feelings of nervousness and then know what to say. And I hope that they can take that away and say, I can do that too.
1: Mm. Thank you so much for today. Thank you. This was so lovely talking to you. It on really so many was. levels. I feel like I want to interview you back now, but let me know <laughs> if you're ever doing a Hannah episode and I can interview you and ask you all the same questions. Oh, what an
0: idea. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Sarah Polly. It is always such a pleasure. And you know, we talked a lot about therapy, and Sarah touched on meditation and mindfulness. So I've got some resources for you. Catherine, a reader of At the End of the Day, sent me a great list of mindfulness programs from CAMH, which is the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. So there's that link and more in the show notes. Check it out. And if you're in Canada, there is a national crisis line available 24-7 for support that you can call. It's 1-833-456-4566. Now, before I sign off, I want to tell you about an organization that I love. They're called The Period Purse, and they're a national charity that focuses on period equity. I'm sure you've heard of period equity. And if you haven't, not being able to afford proper period care products in Canada is real. One study from Plan Canada showed that nearly a quarter of Canadians under the age of 25 who have periods have struggled to afford period care. So for me, this issue is about dignity and it's about equity and if you want to know more about the period purse and support their work go to the and read their story i love what they do and that brings us to the end of this episode thank you so much for listening to at the end of the day this episode was produced by olivia trono and me hannah sung theme music for the show is a song called commentators written by jeremy singer and performed by hank At the End of the Day is brought to you by a team, editorial assistant Francis Kim, newsletter editor Laura Hensley. And if you are contributing to the Patreon for this show, thank you for bringing the show to life. That includes Miranda, Lorraine, Joanne, Chris, and David, my old boss. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed this episode. You can subscribe to my newsletter and find our Patreon link at endoftheday.ca. That's E-N-D-O-F-T-H-E-D-A-Y.ca. And this podcast is part of the Media Girlfriends Network. You can find us at mediagirlfriends.com.